would you join me, Acts chapter number 11, toward the end of the chapter. Um, I hope you are thoughtful as you're singing. I assume that you are. You never know the thoughts that these songs may cause to come into your mind as I was singing that one, or really listening to you guys sing on the last one. Uh, my mind started wondering, because I know the Old Testament talks about how the angels would look into what was being written by the prophets. And they didn't know, meaning they were, they were curious. They, they didn't understand all the prophecies themselves. So as things were happening in the New Testament, it was in real time for them as well. And so I wondered, when did it dawn on them? And I was also standing there thinking, when did Satan start realizing that he had really messed up? When did it dawn? Was it when Jesus starts preaching from Abraham's bosom to those who had been captive and waiting for his death on the cross. Does he know what's going on? I don't know. Is he aware? Like, wait, what, what, what are you saying? What, what, you're dead. Or was it all the way not until that moment when his body starts breathing? And, of course, he knows the prophecy. He knows that Jesus has said the third day. And just, you got to know, man, his whole thing just came crumbling down right there. <laughs> and he couldn't do a thing about it. Couldn't stop it. Nothing. Does nothing. Just Jesus starts break. Get out of the way. You're, you're defeated. That's our Lord. All right. Acts chapter 11. We're going to do something unusual. We're going to finish chapter 11, Lord willing, and cross over into chapter 12. We're going to kind of ignore the chapter break. There is a chapter break, but we had to kind of do an awkward section last time. So what I'm going to do is not a long introduction like we normally do. And you'd think I would do a long one because it's been six weeks. Think about that. Six weeks since uh, so I was gone to Uganda for a week, did a little stay over in New York for a week. Then we did Uganda update for a week. And then our music service, which was Christmas also. And then Christmas. It's been six weeks since we've been in this book, November 19. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to actually back up and read the last section before this one, and that'll kind of get us uh, caught back up, I think. And then we're actually starting our new section in verse 27. And so the scene is the church uh, began all Jews uh, back in chapter 2, and then in chapter 8, half Jews are brought into the church, the Samaritans, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 10, we spent a lot of thought on, a lot of time on this man, Cornelius, who was the first one of us, first Gentile to be saved, who still was a Gentile, so not becoming a Jew. And with that in mind, Cornelius, the first Gentile, who stayed a Gentile, became a Christian, part of the church. Now verse 19. So let's kind of get a running start from verse 19. Here we go. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen... Travel. So church is mostly still in Jerusalem, Judea, but primarily in Jerusalem at this time. He's referring back to, to a, a, a persecution that began in chapter 8. And so Christians are fleeing. And as they're scattering all around, we're going to see some of where they went. And we're going to see that as they traveled, they went as far as Phoenicia. This would be like the coast of the Mediterranean Sea above Israel, Lebanon. And Cyprus, that's an island in the Mediterranean. And Antioch. So this is up at the top end of Syria. If you have a map in your mind, we put a map up last time. Antioch is 300 miles from Jerusalem. So they've gone as far as that. And as they go, the verse 19 says, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So they are speaking the gospel. 
But it seems their conscience will not let them share the gospel with anybody except other Jews. If Gentiles want to hear it, well, then you need to become Jews. Come down to synagogue, become Jewish, and then we'll tell you too also about this salvation in Christ. But then something happened. But there were some of them, we don't even know their names, men of Cyprus, that island, and Cyrene, northern Africa. Well, they're fleeing. They're scattered. Who, on coming to Antioch, 300 miles away, spoke to the Hellenists. These are the Greek-speaking Gentiles. They spoke to them. I believe they don't even know what has happened with Cornelius. Or Cornelius has already happened. I think they think they're probably the first ones. They're not, but they think they're the first ones. To them, they were the first ones. So these men of Cyprus and Serene, these Christians who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. It's like, let's take a shot. Yeah, but these people don't even like know have a good background in what we call the Old Testament, in the covenant of God with Israel. Don't, don't they have to like, no, I'm, I'm going I'm to try it. I'm just going to start talking to them. I don't know how this happened. I don't know if they got out of the bubble and realized, wow, there's a lot of Gentiles. They have souls too. They're going to hell. We need to tell them about Jesus. This is crazy. Or are they like, you know what? We weren't called to make proselytes to Judaism. We were called to make disciples to Christ. We're years into this thing. We're not doing a very good job. It's time. Maybe that's how it happened. So the question is, would it work? Trying to tell Gentiles who don't know all about the covenant with Israel and God. Can you just start preaching salvation in Christ to them? Would it even work? And the hand of the Lord was with them, verse 21. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So in Antioch, Gentiles, they, somebody was bold enough to tell them. And it actually worked. And then the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Like, what? what's going on? We know about Cornelius. Like, there's a breakout up there. Oh, absolutely. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. He's wise. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. He knows what to Go check this thing out. Verse 23, when he came, he saw the grace of God. There's no doubt about it. This is real. And he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Wow, this is awesome. He was excited about it. Why was he glad? Why does he exhort them? Verse 24, because he was a good man. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So what's the result of Barnabas going up there? A great many people who were, were added to the Lord. Like many got saved. Here comes Barnabas. More and more people are starting to get added to the Lord. So what does Barnabas do? Whoa, this thing is huge. It's massive. It's more than I can do. So verse number 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. I need some help. And when he had found him, the idea took a while. It wasn't easy to find him. He brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they, Barnabas and Saul, Met with the church and taught a great many people. So now they're getting discipled. So much so that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's where we got that name. Like, you guys are at the party of Christ. We don't know was that funny, humorous, derogatory, or just factual. Wow, these people are serious. They, they, they keep talking about this Christ. And so Antioch, this Gentile church, just in a year or so has just exploded. And God is blessing. With that in mind, that's our context. Verse 27. So we're going to read down to chapter 12, verse 5. Now in these days, in that time frame, we're probably looking 12, 13, 14 years after Jesus has resurrected. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now we know about north-south, so it doesn't look like coming down, but... It's like in their minds, everything was going up to Jerusalem. So here comes these 
prophets. I used to read that, and I think every other time I've ever read it in my life, I always kind of pictured a string, like one after another, prophets coming to Antioch. But this week, as I read this, it seems to me this is a group of prophets. Read it again. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. I believe that means a group of them. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit. So literally, this guy has the Holy Spirit tell him something. He stands up and he starts making a prediction. One of them named Agabus. He's going to come up again in chapter 21. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. The idea there, the Roman world. There's going to be a famine that is coming. And then Luke, our author, writing 17 or 18 years later, is able to put in parentheses, this took place in the days of Claudius. Claudius was an emperor. I'll tell you the dates on him in a moment. And so Luke is saying, this man Agabus says there's going to be a great famine. And now Luke looks back and says, and that is what happened. In fact, it happened during this person's reign as emperor. So there's that, verse 27, 28. So the disciples, we're talking about Antioch's disciples, these predominantly Gentiles. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability. Now I'm not going to dig in on that. I don't have time to dig in every word and every phrase this week. And I'm not going to dig into that one. And I don't, this is again, this is my opinion. I don't think that means literally every person in the church gave. I think it's this idea, everyone according to his ability, meaning People didn't give the same amount. It wasn't like a set amount. It's like some have this ability to give and others have more ability and some have less. And presumably some just weren't able to give. So the disciples determine over this famine, this prophecy and this event of the famine. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the, what's the next word? Brothers. So we're already noticing this attitude of these Gentiles. We need to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They're Jewish. You're already starting to see this bonding. And they did so. Verse number 29, they determined to send relief. Verse number 30, they did it. There's a thought. Just didn't have these good intentions. They did it. Sending it to the elders. First time we have that word in the book of Acts. In the early church. And they did, I'm not going to draw it out because we preached about elders back when we were in chapter 6. So they determined to send relief. They did so, sending it to the elders, the idea of elders in Judea, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul have been teaching for about a year. And then all of a sudden, here they go with relief, monetary relief, during this famine down to Jerusalem and Judea to the Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And so there finishes chapter 27. So verse 20, chapter 11. So verse 27 starts with this phrase, now in these days, the idea of the first year or two of Antioch. With that thought in mind, we're going to go ahead in chapter 12, verse 1, about that time. So there's multiple things. Of all the things Luke could have written on, he pulls out this prophecy of a famine and this giving of relief, and now he's going to pull in this other scene. Of all the things in church history, and there's going to be a massive shift in chapter number 13. So our last chapter here, of the first half, the two parts of Acts, we're closing chapter 12. Here he goes. About that time, so as Antioch's getting really started, Herod, the king. This is not Herod the Great. He's dead. This is his grandson. This is a real man. 
And Luke, our author of Luke and Acts, is the one New Testament writer who really goes out of his way to show us the historical persons and timing and titles, and he gets it right every single time. Not all the Herods are kings, but this one was. His name's Herod Agrippa I. So about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Verse 2, he killed James. There's four or five possible Jameses in the New Testament. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Doesn't say, but apparently he had his head cut off with the sword. So he lays violent hands on some in the church. We don't even know their names. He kills James with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews. Oh, y'all like that? So the Jews, he's king over these Jews. And like, oh, you like that? What does he do then? He proceeded to arrest Peter also. Oh, then I'll get Peter, the big dog. This was during the days of unleavened bread. We know that there's Passover in, in March, April. That's followed by seven or eight days of the days of unleavened bread. And these eight days together make up this feast of Passover. So we know it's in the springtime. That's when you arrest Peter. And you're not supposed to like, have any executions or anything during that time period. They weren't supposed to execute Christ, but Christ was on his own time frame. God made sure that Jesus was crucified at Passover, though they didn't want it to happen. So here comes this king. He's not going to break the rules. So he proceeded to arrest Peter. This is during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison. Okay, sounds simple enough. Got him in prison a lot of it? No. Delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Like Peter gets 16 guys special for him. Four groups of four, and they're going to rotate either through the night or perhaps six-hour shifts. We're not real sure. Are they three-hour shifts through the night or six-hour shifts through the day? But, man, four at a time. And when you're out these four, and these, in other words, man, this guy's a prized prisoner. Intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. I killed him. I got him arrested. And, man, this is going to be great. This is, you're going to love me after this. And then we have these two scenes in verse 5. So... Peter was kept in prison. And we'll have to come back to this next week, Lord willing, and recapture verse 4. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. So Peter was kept in prison, but here's this other scene. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Three things this morning. Number one, would you notice that Antioch, back in chapter 11, responds to Jerusalem's needs. Antioch responds to Jerusalem's need. Verse 27, now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. So we think about, I'm not going to do a deep dive here, just hang with me for a moment. We have Old Testament prophets and that was an office, and they had an ability, and they would hear from the Lord, and they would make proclamations, and they would teach, and they would preach. And we have New Testament prophets, and I think there's a slight difference, at least in how they operated. Could I just throw this out? New Testament prophets seem to be a little more on the move than the Old Testament. Not that they didn't move around, but the New Testament prophets seem to move around a good bit because the church is far more widespread. We know that the New Testament prophets are listed second in a ranking behind the apostles. And so anything that they ever say has to be subject and needs to line up with the teaching of the apostles. 
So if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. We've said it over and over, but let's just get it in our mind. What is this idea of prophets and prophecy? Prophecy can point to two things. It can point to foretelling, as we think of predictive prophecy, which we have here with Agabus. But really, most of the time, it speaks of foretelling God's truth. So it can be predictive in nature, foretelling the truth of God. But most of the time, it is foretelling and preaching and speaking the truth of God. And again, I'm not going to do a deep dive. And I realize in the room this morning, there would be some disagreement on this with me. And that's okay. That's okay. I might disagree with myself in 10 years on this. Um, But I'm going to offer the following. There is a form of prophecy that still exists today. But I don't think it's, it's not the same as New Testament prophets and Old Testament prophets. You say, what do you mean? There is a form Okay, we have this predictive nature, this foretelling, and we have this foretelling. And so we know in the New Testament there is a spiritual gift of foretelling, speaking, preaching, in essence, the truth and the Word of God. So we know that exists in the New Testament. So I'm going to give you a hint. I kind of like this. This is me. You can study it out deeper, and you don't have to agree with all this. Um, But Wearsby had a couple of good thoughts, I thought, this week when I read him. Here's how he would offer it. So you ready? Here we go. He writes that New Testament prophets received their messages from the Lord immediately. New Testament prophets received their messages from the Lord immediately. Now, don't start writing it as soon as I get the end of the sentence because I want to get one more sentence past it. It's important. Quote, New Testament prophets received their messages from the Lord immediately, but ministers and teachers today get their messages immediately through the scriptures. Hang on, don't, don't write yet. Through the scriptures. We today have the completed word of God from which the Holy Spirit teaches and guides us. Meaning, they didn't have that in the New Testament. They didn't have the completed word of God. We do. So they're getting their messages from the Lord immediately. The Lord's saying, teach this, declare that. And they have it. And they would teach it and preach it. We today, primarily, I'm not saying this is an exhaustive quote or stance. What I'm saying is I agree with this. Primarily, those with the gift of prophecy, they're going to get their message immediately. So it's still from the Lord, but it's through this. Whereas they didn't have that all, so it's fresh right here. And again, always subject to what the apostles were teaching. So now if you want to write that note. So I'm not going to keep digging into that. I'm going to just kind of finish this thought. You say, so, so you do believe there's a version of prophecy today. I do. In the spirit of this note that Wearsby wrote, here's what I believe. I believe that a version of the gift of prophecy today would be, now follow me, I'll let you write that in a moment, watch. It's as though God takes somebody and he gets their attention and it's almost as though he goes face to face. He puts something inside of them that says, hey, you, listen to me. Based on this passage, based on this truth, this verse, based on this principle that you've been thinking and studying about, I want you to now go go declare to that group of people, that church, that nation, go tell them to do this and this and this. And this person has this passion because God has singled them out. I've got to go, and it's based on this, based on the Word of God. And often I would say their message is very heavy in application. It's very heavy in the application side. You say, okay, Jeff, is that the extent of your belief? I'm going to offer one more level. Did did everybody catch that? So they're reading, they're studying the Bible, they're thinking. And wow, God gets a hold of them like, 
Man, I got to tell somebody. I got to tell that person or that couple or that group or that church. I got to tell them what God has told me to say. He's just, it's burdened me. But I do believe, this is me, this is where you'd really say, I don't go with you there, and that's fine. I do believe there's a version of this gift that a person may be prompted by the Holy Spirit, and they may not even be literally at the moment in the Word. But the Holy Spirit may give them a custom, and this is what I believe, not many. Some people may get a custom word for someone, and like, Hey, God has just told me. You say, you believe that? I don't doubt it. I think it can happen. But what I'm going to say is if and when that happens, it will always agree with the written word of God. Nobody with that gift today has the right to go around and say, well, God has told me. And it's like, man, the whole spirit of what you're saying sounds very fleshly and about you. And it just goes against this. Now, that's not God. But I do believe it's like, they don't even know why. Like, hey, come in. God has told me to tell you. And, it, and that person's like, oh, my goodness. God has been, like, wearing me out on what you just said. And it matches the word. Of, that's kind of where I'm at. You can be somewhere else and be wrong if you want. But anyway. No. I'm, no. Anyway. Bible prophets. What was their ac- accuracy rate? 100%. If you're not 100%, I was reading recently in Isaiah, and the Lord was talking about those that are charmers and study the stars and not get into it. But he did allude that perhaps you will be right sometimes, but I will confound you. I'll confound you, and I will. In other words, God makes a distinction. His people, his prophets are always right. The astrologers, and are they still selling those things? I hope not. Are they still at the checkout counter or your... 2024, oh, I got one right. There's going to be turmoil in the world in 2023. Really? There will be some wars. Really? Wow, you are great. There's, no, there's going to be war in like the Middle East. Really? There's going to be tension. Wow, you are brilliant. To be a Bible prophet, you've got to be right 100% of the time. And Agabus in chapter 21 and here in chapter number 11, this guy's spot on both times. Claudius is mentioned. This man ruled from A.D. 41 to 54. History tells us that in his reign, there were multiple crop failures and famines, particularly in four main areas that were hit heavy, and the worst of those that were hit was Judea. And this was predicted by this man Agabus before it actually took place. So here's my question. I had time, and it kind of, I would not be able to really get across what I'm about to say, but it kind of puzzled me, like, okay, Luke has all this he could have written about. And he tells us, Agabus makes this prediction about a famine, and it actually happens. And then there's this love offering and relief giving. And so I started thinking, what's his main point? What's the point he's really wanting to get across? Well, there's an obvious point, right? God knows the future. We serve a God who knows the future and can declare it in advance. Again, that was a big thing in Isaiah. Over and over, God's like, hey, compare me to them other, those other gods. I declare it in advance what's going to happen. He names Cyrus the Great, what, almost 200 years before he does what he does. Before the guy's even born, the Lord names it's going to be Cyrus that's going to allow the Jews to go back from Babylon. It happened just like was written. And I'm telling you, this was miraculous. Cyrus was the servant of the Lord. But there's something bigger. So if you're taking notes, write this down. 
Luke's point is not just that God knows the future. It is also this godly response by the Antioch church. So here's where I don't know. What is this godly response? We're going to have that note, I think. Is that right? Oh, no, I need to get to Wearsby's portion in a moment. So watch. Watch me right here. Here's what I don't know. Is the Antioch's church, is their godly response toward the prophecy or is it toward the famine? Because there would be a gap of time. And I don't know the answer to that. To me, it seems to hint that it's not just, oh, great, we know what's going to happen. We get ready for ourselves. And then it gets less where they're at, but it's now still heavy down there. Hey, we should help them too. That may be what happens, but it seems that they're not just responding to the famine. It seems they respond to the prophecy of the coming famine. Now, hear what Wearsby writes. Second time I'm going to borrow from him. Because he puts things sometimes in a real good practical way. And everybody in here needs to really grasp this note. I'm going to come back to it before I go to the second point. The purpose of true prophecy is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future, but to stir up our hearts to do the will of God. Very important. Now would you write that down? So here, what, Luke, what's your point? Yes, God knows the future. But I want you to see how this Gentile church that's just starting out has such love for their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. It's almost as though Luke, as he's writing, is contrasting in chapter 12 how the Jews are celebrating the persecution and death of other Jews in the church. But in the church, Gentiles are loving on and feel responsibility for their spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. It's like, yes, God knows the future, but I want you to see this response, this loving response by the Christians in Antioch. A brand new church, and they already get it. Man, they get it. They're doing it. Before it's even written in the Bible, they're doing it. I think this is its point, and I think they're connected. And that's why I put that Wearsby thought in there. The purpose of true prophecy is not just to satisfy our curiosity about the future. No, why does God give prophecy? To stir our hearts to complete and do the will of God. And that's what they do. Go with me if you would. Hold your spot here. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6 is written after where we're reading. Where we're reading in history, this has not been written yet. It's a few years after this. But they're already living out a couple of principles that Paul is later on going to write down that are principles for Christians. And so I, I hope... As we kind of come down to the end of this first point, I hope every Christian in here, if you're watching online, if you're a believer, I hope that you would take to heart these principles because they were demonstrated by the Antioch church. Galatians chapter 6, look at verse number 9. Galatians 6, 9. Paul, having just said, we're going to reap what we sow. Hey, Gracefield, you're going to reap what you sow. If you sow sinful seeds to your flesh, you're going to reap corruption. But if you'll sow to your spirit, you're going to reap spiritual blessings. Verse 9, based on that, let us not grow weary in doing good. Grace, if you do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap, the Bible says. If we do not give up, you're going to reap. So based on that, sow then. So here's a Bible principle. 
as we have opportunity. You may not always have opportunity to do all that you want to do. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there's two things there. Two things. Number one, do good to those who are the household of faith. And then second to that, you do good for everyone. Primarily, that word especially moves this up to the top. Especially those who are of the house. Do good. You're going to reap. Do good. Especially those who are of the house. Other Christians. Also for everyone. Do good for everyone. But especially. Now, there's another principle in this passage. If you have your Bible open, you do have an advantage. I didn't put it on the screen. You can figure out why. It's in verse 6. But let's draw a couple of principles from this. The first principle I'm going to have you write is not clear, obvious in this text in verse 9 and 10. Though you do see it in chapter, in verse 6. But the key is the Antioch Christians got it. You see a reference there? Do y'all have a reference there? I think I put it in, in Romans 15, 27. Do y'all see that? If, did I put that in there? Romans 15, 27 in your handout? Yes. Don't look it up now, but here's what you're going to find. Paul is telling the Romans, hey, I'm already taking a collection from the Christians in northern and southern Greece, Macedonia and Achaia. Romans, you need to give to this as well, and it's for the poor saints who are over in Jerusalem. And so there's a principle there, if you want to write it down. Christians should share their material blessings with those God has used to bless them spiritually. And that's a principle. And that's what Paul does in Romans chapter 20, Romans 15, 27. Hey, Romans, you need to get in on this because the Jerusalem saints are the ones who sent you the gospel. You're on your way to heaven because you heard the gospel from them. And now they're hurting financially, materially, and you have what it takes. So help them out. Hey, North, Christians in, nor, in northern and southern Greece, get in on this. You've benefited spiritually. You guys owe the Jerusalem church. This is what the Antioch church is doing in Acts chapter 11. Like, wow, the famine hit us, but it really hit them bad. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We owe them. We owe them. And it was Christians from there that came here. They sent us the prophets. They sent us Barnabas and Saul. We owe them. And look, we can help them out financially. So principle number one, Christians should share their material blessings with those God has used to bless them spiritually. But particularly here to this text is the second one. Would you write this down? And I'm going to add a, an important hyphenated combo word that I didn't have room for. If you want to write it, I would encourage you. Number two, Christians are to be spirit-filled in giving to the poor. But especially, their main responsibility is to fellow believers and so I'm going I'm to offer you a principle based on verses 9 and 10 and listen Christians ought to be giving to the poor as your spirit led but in our giving to the poor and the needy our first and main responsibility is always to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ so if you're one who gives to the poor you need to put this principle in your life and like yes be generous Give to others, 
but mainly as I have opportunity to brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. That's who, so these are two separate things. God used that person to bless you spiritually, and you're able to bless them materially. But here we have these other people. It's like they don't have, that, they don't have what they need, and you do have it, so what should you do? In a spirit-filled way, give to all poor. You don't have to be a Christian to, for Christians to give to the poor, nor do you have to be a Christian for grace for you to give to you. But I'm going to tell you, our priority is going to be giving to brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. Can I explain quickly what I mean? You need to be spirit-led in giving to the, the poor. Oh, there comes someone. I can tell they're getting ready to hit me up. Lord, should I give or not? I don't know anything about them. I guess I should just give. Or no, I never give. They're like, no. Lord, what would you have? Would you have me to give? It may just be this person's unsaved. God may be drawing them and you giving to them in the name of Christ may help them be wooed and drawn to the Lord. God may use that. But on the flip side, I'm going to give you my opinion here. I don't think Christians need to be just indiscriminately giving to the poor because you may actually end up just be softening the bed of someone who's determined to live a sinful, rebellious life against the Lord and they're always in need. And their thought is, I want nothing to do with God, but every time I have a financial need, I expect the church to come bail me out. No. No. Not on my watch. You're not going to keep doing that. We're not just going to like write checks all the time. You have nothing to do with God. You've heard over and over and over. No, that's wrong. We're not going to give out indiscriminately. Priority, priority is to the family of God. And then as the Lord leads to others who are poor. We don't want to make it easy for people to live in sin. And that may be what you're doing. Back to Acts. Verse number 29. The disciples determined to send relief. In verse 30, and they did so. They did it. They did so. You all know what good intentions are. They're good. Intentions. You know what good intentions are not. You know what good intentions can't do. Good intentions don't pay bills. They don't put food on the table. They don't put clothes on people's bodies. And good intentions don't put missionaries on the field. So maybe someone here today, you're like, yep, I, I keep hearing you say that about Lottie Moon. I, I, I intend to, that's great, that's awesome. And they did so. <laughs> At some point, good intentions got to turn to action. It's got to happen. Now, right before I leave and go to the second point, which is the shortest one this morning. I have a question for you. I don't want you to answer out loud. I want you to think, though. Here's my question. What are the primary prophecies for us today? Don't answer out loud. I, I want you to think about it. In your own heart, answer that question. What are the primary prophecies for us today? Jesus is coming back. That is true. And man, that is encouraging. I'm going to propose to you that is one of the prophecies. I'm going to say that's a subpoint of... The primary prophecies. No, no, Jesus is coming back. Hang on. What do we know is going to happen in the future? What are the primary, the biggest of all? Everybody that you know is going to stand before God. Is that not the primary prophecy? 
If you're a Christian, you will stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ and you will be rewarded for your Christian life. If you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, you're going to stand at the great, this is the great prophecy. These are the primary prophecies. You're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment and the books of your life are going to be open and everything you've done has been read and if they're at the great white throne judgment, the book of life is going to be open and their name is not going to be in it and they are going to be condemned to eternal torments. And here's what we know. The prophecies tell us these are real events. Everybody will be judged by God. And the only way to escape condemnation is by receiving the salvation of the Lord by putting your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross. Jeff, why would you bring that up? Because Wearsby's quote needs to be brought back in. The purpose of true prophecy is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future. It's to stir our hearts to do the will of God. If I know every person is going to stand before God and be judged... And most are going to stand at the great white throne and they're going to be condemned to hell for eternity in torments. But we know the answer. I love a good prophecy study. That's great. I love brother so-and-so. And some of you are, and by the way, I'm not saying this is bad. If you got that old plasticky book back home and it's got those 12 cassettes in it from Dr. So-and-so and you bought that back in the 80s because you love good prophecy... Because it's so interesting, isn't it? But if all you've ever done with all of your prophecy study is just spend your time, what do you believe? I got this theory. Just batting it around theologically, but you die having never evangelized or discipled anyone, shame on you. We have it, so it'll stir our hearts. We got to get out there and do something with this. That's what they did. Famine. If we heard this prophecy... Famine's coming? I know what you'd do. You'd save your money and you'd save your food. I would. You know what they did? It doesn't say it, but it's implied. They saved their money and they saved their food with the thought, we're going to help our brothers and sisters. Chapter 12. Number two, Herod persecutes the church. Herod persecutes the church. Verse number one, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This Herod is Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, who's not great. Okay? Y'all have heard of Herod the Great, right? Watch this. There's Herod the Great. This joker... He is so messed up. He was messed up. He said, isn't he the one who killed the, Jerusalem, the Bethlehem babies? Yeah, he is wacko. He kills this man's dad. So this man is his grandson. His dad is Aristobulus. Herod the Great murders his son before he dies. I mean, we could go on and on about Herod. Herod, Herod the Great marries ten different women. Herod the Great is not Jewish. He's an Edomite. But he has Roman connections, and so he was king. Over a large territory. This man here actually ends up, by the end of it all, ruling and reigning over about the same area that his granddad did. Not all the Herods in the New Testament could be really called king, but this one was. So granddad marries all these women. One of the women he marries, so he's an Edomite, not a Jew, but he does marry a woman who has some degree of, of Jewishness. She's Hasmonean. So it goes back to the intertestamental period of the Maccabean. She has Maccabean Jewish blood in her. So he marries her. They have Aristobulus. 
this man's son. So this man here has some Jewishness in him. And you say, why are you mentioning all this? Because nothing is really said about why this guy suddenly starts persecuting the church. Why are you doing this? I'm going to throw two things at you. One, it may be this guy had a lot of Jewish desire in him and he was sincere. And he was so fervent for Judaism, he hates Christianity and he persecutes them. That may be the case. But if you're taking notes, write down about number three, when he saw that it pleased the Jews. Verse three implies that he's trying to boost his approval ratings by persecuting Christians to project himself and promote himself as this great defender of Judaism, the protector of their traditions. We have that note, I think. Is that right? I don't know if I've hit it. I'll go ahead and put it up, whatever's the next one. Oh, yeah. So notice the last thing. Actually, take that off. I messed you up. I'm sorry. Astrid's on it, and I'm not. There is no note for what I just said. There is no note. Herod, Herod Agrippa, okay, it's not... No note for that. Didn't have room. I, that was one I deleted, I believe. We'll get to that note in a second. So here's this man. Don't know why he starts persecuting Christians, but here's what I do know. His, get it. His persecution is not going to last that long. It's going to be devastating and severe. It's not going to last that long because he's going to be dead by verse number 23. So that's the good news about him. Now I want you to look at verse 2. Would you look at verse 2? He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. I said earlier in the first reading, there's four or five, possibly five men named James. We know, let this sink in, Jesus has a half-brother named James. That's not this one. We know there's at least two disciples of the twelve named James. And some of their fathers are named James. One author, um, a British author, even made a comment. I forget how he worded it. Apparently, they were hard up for boys' names back then. Right? And so they have a lot of the same names. I mean, they didn't have cool names like Jeff and stuff like that. They just didn't have those. So they, they had other cool names, just not so many of them. And so this James, we know who it is. This is James, the brother of John, the two sons of Zebedee. This is James. This James is in the inner circle. So let, put yourself in this time period. You're in the church. What, what just happened? They killed James. Which, which James? Peter, James, and John. John's old. cut his head off. Now they know the apostles are not immortal, they're mortal, and they don't get replaced. Judas got replaced so that there's 12. This James is not going to be replaced, and another put in his position. He's dead. And now they've also arrested Peter. So here's what's... Most of y'all know how chapter 12 goes, right? So I'm going to let you in on a little secret, because Custer's going to give us... Some insight. James is killed. He has his head cut off. We don't know hardly anything about what he did. But then Peter, newsflash, he's going to be delivered. Custer writes the following. This scene, these verses, now hear it first. It's important. Manifests God's sovereign, providential control over all human life. You see it right here in verse 2 and 3. You say, yeah, we hear it all the time from you, Jeff. You're big on God's sovereignty and his control over all things, right? Custer writes the following. Let this sink in. James, a faithful apostle, is killed by an evil man in the will of God. Peter, a faithful apostle. Did you catch that? He's here again. James, 
a faithful apostle is killed in the will of God. Peter, a faithful apostle, is delivered against all odds in the will of God. And this is the mystery. This is a mystery to me. God who can do whatever he wants and controls all things and controls the lives of all people. Why does he let some of us live in comparative ease? Let me rephrase it. Why does he let all of us live in relative, comparable ease? You say, ease nothing. I have hardships in my life. I understand that. But do you know, though, that there are other Christians who have all the same hardships that you have? Family issues, financial issues, physical issues. But they're in other contexts where they're having to meet in private and in secret. And they're harassed for their faith. Their money is taken. Their building is taken. Their house is taken. Why do we get this version of life and some other of our brothers and sisters throughout history and other places of the world? They get thrown in prison and they get beaten, tortured, tormented over and over. Just go ahead and kill me. No, not going to kill you. And others are killed in a horrible way. Go read Fox's Book of Martyrs. God's in control of all that, and yet this is the life some of us get, and that's the life that others get, and God's sovereign over it all. It's a mystery. I can't tell you why God does all that he does, but it's a real thing. So would we write that? And then that note points out at the end. Here's what church history tells us. Persecution has been the norm. We're in the bubble. We're in the bubble. We hear about persecution, or we read about it in the past and think, oh, wow, that's so strange and odd. No, what's going on here for the last couple of hundred years, four or five hundred years? That's unusual. So don't be shocked when it comes, is I guess one of the thoughts we're saying. Persecution was the norm. All right, I'm almost done with this second point. I just need to point out two quick things. One, while you're writing that. What does this mean when... Luke writes in verse number 3, And when he, Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews. Why are the Jews pleased over this? What does that mean? And so as you're writing that, maybe if you finished, you got your marker in chapter 12. Go back, if you would, chapter 5, just for a moment. What does this mean when he saw, why are the Jews pleased at the persecution and killing of Christians? Persecution of the church, why are the Jews? So one, I'm going to throw it out. This hit me even after I put this next note, even after I put that in there, it kind of hit me later. Jeff, there's a possibility these Jews that are pleased by this may just be the Jewish leadership. We know they've hated Christians all along, but the way it's put in the text doesn't seem to single out the Jewish leaders. It seems to be the average Jewish person. So I'm going to ask you something in light of chapter 5. You got your Bible open. Flip back just a few chapters. Chapter number 5, look at verse number 12. This is right after the Ananias and Sapphira incident. In verse number 11, not on the screen, says, Great fear came upon the whole church, and all who heard of these things, wow, Ananias and Sapphira, wow, the Holy Spirit killed them for lying. But look at chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they, the church, were all gathered we're all together in Solomon's portico. So the apostles on a regular basis are doing miracles and wonders and signs, many of which are healings. We have some examples already in the text. Regularly, but verse number 13, none of the rest, the unsaved, these other Jews, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So here's what that tells me. Average Jew in Jerusalem, we're not joining the church, but we think a lot of them. 
They know Jesus' tomb is empty. That's puzzling. I am interested to hear your explanation. I know what they say. They know that Jesus had this miraculous power. It's undeniable. Uncle so-and-so had his hand put back on by Jesus. And his disciples are doing all of these miracles that are helping. These guys are real assets. I'm not ready to join you. I'm just not there because they hate you guys and I'm not ready to be persecuted. But I sure think a lot of you. Something has happened from chapter 5 to chapter number 12. What is it? What is it? Well, all of a sudden, now they're approving of the persecution. And so what I would propose to you is it's probably chapter 11, verse number 18. When the church heard about Gentiles, and they heard Peter's explanation of Cornelius, and they gave God the glory that he's given and granted repentance to the Gentiles as well. And then all this, in their minds, this nonsense, these uncircumcised Gentiles are now in the church. It was more than they could take. And now they're ready. Kill them. We have no more high esteem for them. As you're writing that, I'll give you one last thought from these verses 1 through 4. Because I want to finish in verse 5. It's a quick thought, but it's important. And somebody here today needs to really hear this. Herod Agrippa I illustrates for us that when sin is unchecked, it always leads to more sin. And when more sin comes, there's a heavy price to pay. So just put that in your mind. When sin is allowed to go unchecked, it breeds more sin. It starts out, he's putting violent hands on unnamed people in the church. He should have given in to conviction right there and got that right with God and repented. But no, he kills James. Man, he should really repent now. No, he arrests Peter and has intention of killing him too. This guy just keeps going further. One sin leads to another. You know what I find? If you lie and you don't check the lie... You'll have more lies to follow. Lying leads to lying. Fornication, unrepented of, unconfessed, it's going to lead to more fornication. Pornography viewing, not repented of when the Holy Spirit convicts, is going to lead to more pornography. Getting drunk tonight, it's going, if you don't repent, don't do it. And you just keep blowing by what the Holy Spirit convicts you of. It's going to lead to more and more and more. And it's going to have a heavy price at the end. You and your family is going to pay at the end of it. Because you just refuse to listen. Sin unchecked leads to more sin. Do you have any sin in your life this morning? Got any known but unconfessed sin sitting there right now? This is your warning. Get it right. Don't be like this man. He dies in verse 23. Not saying you're going to die. But you could. Seriously, but you could. And now in verse 5, let's finish there. So we have these two scenes. We'll come back to the first part of verse 5 next week. Because it's kind of comical. I'll go ahead and tell you if you want to read next week's passage. Some funny things happen. God has a sense of humor. I like it. So Peter was kept in prison. But... Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And so 
I'm going to go quickly as I can, but I can't pass this. This is not a theological passage about how to pray, but I declare, guys, it's a historical passage about effective praying. And there are tucked in this little phrase, the second half of verse 5, there are some truths. I'm skipping a couple. I'm going to skip a couple. But there are some things that are in here that we need to really be challenged by this morning. Number one, would you notice in our text, verse 5, if you read ahead next week, you'll see that these prayers are effective. They go in the category of effective prayers. And so, number one, effective prayer is reserved for Christians. Prayer was made by the church. We talked about this under Cornelius. And I confess to you, there is a prayer that a non-believer can pray that God does here. And that prayer is, Lord, would you show me more of yourself? Show me how to be saved. Or someone's in total ignorance, please, I'm ready. And they, they're ready to submit. And they actually ask God, show me how to be saved. I believe the Lord will hear that prayer. And if you're unsaved, you ought to pray that prayer. But as far as that, unsaved people, you don't get to pray to God. It really is, listen, the only people can actually pray to God are those who can truly call God their father because they put their faith and trust in his son, his one and only son, which makes them an adopted son. So hold your spot here. Go with me if you would. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, very important. need to see it. Hebrews chapter 10, go there. And we're going to see... What does it even mean when we talk about this in Jesus' name? Jesus says you got to pray in his name. Notice we pray in Jesus' name. Listen, we don't pray in God's name. We don't pray in God's name. We're praying to God in Jesus' name. So the details matter here. Don't have time to spend long. Look at chapter 10 of Hebrews. Look at verse 9. It starts with the word, therefore. Therefore what? Verse 18. Because... Our sins have been forgiven. How have they been forgiven? Verse 14. You got your Bible open, you have an advantage. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected. Hey, Christians, you ought to look at verse 14 and say, wait, wait, this is me. For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time. Those who are being sanctified. Yes, we are being sanctified. We're not perfect in this life, but in God's eyes, in the next life, our position is we're already perfect. Because Jesus did something so powerful one time on the cross. The other high priests, they keep having to make offerings over and over and over. First for themselves. And every year, got to do the high day of atonement again. Jesus, one time. We're perfect in Christ. Does that matter? No, no, it doesn't matter. No, yes, it matters. Of course it matters. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters. Hey, really read this. You know what? I thought about this. I wish that you would approach this discussion of verse 5 on prayer. There's no way to do it. I wish it were possible that we could all take a 15-minute break, get in a room by yourself, pray. Just you and God. Go pray. And then come back. And say, now, now tell me about it. Tell me about your prayer time. And you know what some would do? Oh, I just checked my phone. And others would be, I don't know that I did it very well. And some of you would be, oh, it was great. I wish we could just like, like right after your attempt to pray, we could do this. Treat it like that. If you don't treat it like that, here's what you're going to do. And you're going to blow it. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, 
to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. There's the holy place. And then there's another curtain. There's the holy of holies. The Ark of the Covenant. That's the presence of God. The writer of Hebrews says, We Christians, we come into the holy places not by bull's blood, but by Jesus' blood. I get to come in here because of Jesus' blood. Verse number 20. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Oh yeah, there was a curtain here. And there was another real big thick curtain. Now we don't do that anymore. That he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. God, I'm coming to you and I'm coming through the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ. Here I come. Have an audience with you. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean, not guilty, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. You say, Jeff, what does this whole in Jesus' name mean? It's that passage right there. In Jesus' name is not a little slogan that you tack on at the end of the prayer. I hear them do that at church. Blah, 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 in Jesus' name, amen. That ought to do it, right? That gets it done. No. Write this down. Praying in Jesus' name is an attitude. It's an admission. It's an admission at the beginning of our prayers. It's an attitude at the beginning, throughout the middle, and yes, at the end. Here, here is the attitude. Here's the admission. God, it's you. You're the sovereign of the universe, the farther star. You made it. You're controlling it. You're, you're sovereignly over it right now. You are over everything. I am nothing. I am nothing. In the whole scheme of things, literally, I'm not even like dust on the scales. I have no right to talk to you by myself. I could only talk to you through Christ. But with Christ, I'm going to come boldly. That's what Jesus' name is like. You've taught me there's some serious power in this name, and so I'm claiming this name. Number two. And we'll put it up in a minute. It's one word on your handout if you don't get it, because I want you to write that note. But I'm going to keep moving. So Peter's kept in prison, but earnest prayer. So effective prayer number two is fervent. And I'm going to ask you, you just got out of your 15-minute assignment. Hey, let's come back. How did it go? How did it go? Effective prayer is fervent. So you've written that. You're back in Acts. You see verse number 5. But earnest prayer. You'll not write it for a moment, but I want you to hear it first. Watch. The word earnest means to be stretched out. So stretched out has caused some translators to translate it constant. The church prayed constantly. They stretched out their prayers. Others have said the idea of stretched out is not how long. It's describing how they prayed. And so the real idea, the word earnest is how it's translated here for us in the ESV correctly. It means to be stretched out and it speaks of intense urgency. What the Bible does not describe when it talks about the whole framework of praying, it is not this idea. This is not prayer. This is not the tone of the Bible about prayer. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of casual. Morning, Lord. It'll run a few things by you. That's not the tone of the Bible. 
The whole tone of Scripture when it comes to prayer is these ideas. Urgent, strenuous, passionate, zealous, fervent, focused, concentrated. You're in chapter, now you're not there anymore. I had to go back to Acts 5. Look on the screen. I'm going to go there. Hebrews 5. Look at Hebrews 5. Watch verse number 7. Watch it. Look at it. It's on the screen. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers, that's asking, and supplication, that's desperate pleading. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. This is how Jesus prayed, particularly in the garden. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud, not that, I've been in those, I've been in those meetings, right? I've been in those God. Oh, and it's, like, it's like a contest. And the same ones win every week. Because God is death. I've been, I'm serious, I've been inside. I have one guy in mind. I ain't kidding. If somebody got louder than him, I wasn't praying. I was listening to this. I, who's winning tonight? Oh, brother so-and-so's going, do you, you think you're going to? There it is. He's got another octave. Write this down. It means talking to God with our whole being engaged. It means concentrating on Him, hearing our request, because my request is really important. And you've got all that power. Urgently. Do you pray with fervency and urgency? Would the word earnest describe your prayers? I'm going to borrow, and this is why I'm going to... Be able to go quickly. I've used this before, I admit it. And I've read some prayer books, not a lot. Probably the one that I've read, and it's a little bitty. The one who's helped me the most in prayer is the guy that you see me quoting here a few times. I'm going to have a lengthy one in a moment, so I want everybody to get it. R.A. Torrey really helps me. So you've just had your 15-minute assignment, and here comes, and we're going to go and see what Torrey has to say. How did, how did it, so how did it go? Tory writes the following. We're talking about effective prayer. Quote, the prayer which prevails with God is the prayer into which we put our whole soul, stretching out toward God in intense and agonizing desire. And now you have a note in front of you, so here it comes. Much of our modern prayer... He wrote this, what, over 100 years ago? That was modern at their time. Still fits today. Much of our modern prayer lacks power because it lacks heart. Much of our, and by the way, I'm not, I don't, I don't want this to come across Jeff's fussing. I don't know where you're at. A lot of this hits me. And so if I'm fussing, I'm fussing at me. I'm going to ask you what I'm about to read of his quote. Put it beside your prayer life and ask, does this describe you? Much of our modern prayer life lacks power because it lacks heart. Here's what he writes. We rush into God's presence. Just rush in. Lord, run through a string of petitions. Bang, 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 bang. List them off. Jump up and go out. Is that you? Be honest. 
We rush into God's presence, run through a string of petitions, jump up and go out. If someone asks us an hour later what we prayed for, often we cannot remember. I'll tell you what we do remember, and I'm not saying this fussingly. I'm saying it kind of factually. You know what we do remember? We remember the scores from this weekend. We remember. I remember the score from Friday night. I remember it. It mattered to me. It was a blowout. 45 point. Hey, woo Do you pray? If somebody said, hey, did you pray this morning? Sure did. What would you pray for? He writes, if we put so little heart into our prayers, we cannot expect God to put much heart into answering them. Here's what I find. This is me. I find that my prayers get urgent when two things meet. Number one, when I have desperation for my request. And when God's, I, believe, I think God's the only way I'm going to get it. When those two things come together, I'm desperate for what I'm asking for. I mean, i got to have this, and you're the only way. That's verse 5. The church... God, we've already lost James. We can't lose Peter. Please, God. They don't have another resource. Uh, we want a lawyer. This is the king. Get out of here. We want a retrial. Listen, you didn't get a trial, so there's going to be no retrial. I'm going to kill him. I do what I want. I'm the law. God, you're it. And so I'm going to ask you, you're saying, Jeff, my prayers are like never urgent, never fervent, never zealous. It's because one of these or both of these things are not true of your life. You don't have any urgent, desperate needs. Or you got some other ways of getting it. Desperation comes. No problem. I'll call the doctor. I'll get an appointment. I'll get a loan. I'll get a second job. It's okay. I got my human channels. But when it gets down to... God, this is it. I get real desperate on Sunday mornings because I know there is nobody, nobody anywhere. Nobody's going to be able to bring any power out of this pulpit. God, if you don't show up, it won't happen. Please, God, we need you today. They need you. They may come in and not knowing they need to hear from you. God, they may be eat up with the clock. God, please show up. Please. I get real desperate Sunday mornings. What I find, we have to have some pain or some fear or a burden. Shouldn't always require pain and fear. A good burden will make you get desperate. Number three, quickly. This one sounds like you're, you're joking, right? No, effective prayer is to God. Back to Tori. Here we go. Effective prayer is to God. Tori writes the following. This one's lengthy. You just got out of your... 15-minute assignment, hey, how did, same as it always does, nothing happened. Quote, you ready? The prayer that has power is the prayer that is offered unto God. But some will say, is not all prayer offered unto God? No. Very much of so-called prayer, both public and private is not unto God. In order for a prayer to really be unto God, here it comes, there must be a definite and conscience approach to God. 
For to really be unto God, you have to like, I'm really going to approach God. Here's your next to the last note. Tory writes, we must have a vivid, I'm sorry, a definite and vivid realization that God is bending over us, listening as we pray. That's what we need. Before we just launch off into saying our words, we need a definite and vivid realization, a realization by faith. God is bending over us, listening as we pray. There, there, there you are, Lord. I know my time's gone, but I'm going to hit this. And listen. Let's say you've set aside 12 minutes to pray. You can do your, go through the motions and say the same old, same old. There, I did it. Oh, time's up. There is one way. There is another. I'm not going to hit right now. But then there's what I'm about to tell you. This is my opinion, but it's the right one. I mean it. Watch. If you have set aside 12 minutes to pray, if you have to strive and wrestle and work and labor for 11 minutes to even get to one minute of authentically talking to God, then you strive and work and labor to get to that. Don't just go through the motions. I mean, if you got to get your verses, I only got I don't have time for verse. If it takes, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For who comes to God must believe that he is. God, I believe that you are. Jesus says, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. If you ask in faith, with no doubting. In that day you will ask me nothing, but I say unto you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you that your joy may be. If you've got to just wrestle and fight and like keep losing your concentration and you're just striving, if you've got to do that for 11 minutes to get 60 seconds of actual authentic, you do that. One minute of authentic is way better than 12 minutes going through the motions. If you've got to fight and strive for three minutes to get 12 seconds of authentic... And then you lose. Oh, oh, there I go again. And you fight and strive and you focus. And like, Lord, there you are, Lord. And then and there's another six seconds. And you fight and strive for three, four more minutes. And then, and all of a sudden, right at the end, it's like, well, now you're showing up real clear and for long term. Like, yeah. You leave when he dismisses you. Back to Tori. Can I hit this quickly? And I'm gonna, we're going to hit that last one fast. Here it is. In very much of our prayer, there's really only little thought of God. Is this you? Our mind is taken up with the thought of what we need and is not occupied with the thought of the mighty and loving Father of whom we are seeking it. We're all caught up with the need. We don't even see God. I don't have this. But there's another version. He writes, Oftentimes we are neither occupied with the need nor with the one to whom we are praying. Instead, our mind is wandering here and there throughout the world. There is no power in that sort of prayer. But when we really come into God's presence, really meet Him face to face in the place of prayer, really seek the things that we desire from Him, then there is power. Do you see that triangle? Really seek the things 
that we desire from him. So you start with this. There you are. Can I talk? Can we talk about get that triangle going? He says, if we want to pray correctly, the first thing we should do is make sure that we really seek an audience with God. That we really get into his very presence. I would propose to you, after you've done that, then now you claim Jesus' name. Start with this. Where? There you are. I'm coming by Christ. Oh, I get closer now. Oh, I see. Before a word of petition is offered, we should have the definite and vivid consciousness that we're talking to God. I, I offer you, don't move forward until that is there. It's a waste. Also, we should believe that he is listening to our petition and is going to grant the thing that we ask of him. Number four. Effective prayer must be made. But earnest prayer for him was made. Let's finish in James 4. Go there, James 4. Quickly, quickly, quickly. James 4, verse 1. Effective prayer has to be made. Hey, we ought to send some relief to the saints down in Judea. Yep. We've determined to do it. That's great. And they did so. And then this church prayed. Prayer was made. You're familiar with this passage. I can't dig into it all. I'm going to get right to the end of it. It's the point. Look at it. James 4 verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions, your pleasure, your desire for pleasure, your passions are at war within you. Do you see it? So here we go. Look at verse 2. You desire, do not have. So you just murder. You covet, cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. That's all of our little man-made techniques to get what we want. You desire and do not have, you mur- so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask is what God says. This is so simple. You're like, I know you're sitting there thinking, Jeff, come on, please, wrap it up. We got it. Got to pray. We got to pray. Write this down. What verse 2 is teaching, this is the reality. God is withholding certain blessings because we do not ask him for them. It is that simple. That is such a simple little statement. But if, you would, if that would ever hit our minds the right way, we would start praying. Now, hold, hold on. What are you saying? I'm telling you, based on James 4, 2, God is withholding. They're on the table. They're yours, but you're not getting them because you've not asked him for them. To which you're thinking, well, hang on, Jeff. If he really wants us to have them, then why doesn't he just go ahead and give them? I don't know. All I know is what the verse says, and so I take it literally. You know what doesn't work? To go through life with an internal wish list. And this is a lot in the room this morning. There's a lot of people right now. we got this internal wish list. Boy, I wish that. I wish that. And here's another group. That's it. I am going to start praying. If I do anything in 2024, I am going to start praying. Man, that's awesome. Until you actually do it, it's just good intentions. At some point, your wish list and your good intentions, God says, oh, I got it right here. 
but I'm withholding it. I want you to verbalize your desperate request in the form of a petition, specific request. And then see what happens. Jeff, are you saying I'll get everything I ever want on my wish list? No, but I close with this thought. We are, I'm going to say it like three times. We are not getting some things we desire simply because we do not ask. We are not getting some things we desire simply because we do not ask. I'm telling you, we're blowing it. We're going to get to heaven and we're going to go, Lord, why didn't you? And he's going to say, you never asked. Are you saying how to... There are blessings. There are things you desire. I'm not saying you're going to get them all, but I'm telling you, there are things you desire. You're not getting them because you don't ask. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Do you have known sin? Do you have known sin? Number two, how do you respond to prophecy? Let prophecy move you to do the will of God. And what is God saying to you this morning about your prayer life? Do you pray? Do you pray to God? Do you pray to God fervently? Lord, I pray that you would take these thoughts and burn them deep within us. May it affect us right now. Lord, I pray that a lot of people that sat here this morning would take some good intentions and turn them into practice, whether it be giving or praying. In Christ's name, amen. Have a great week. Have a wonderful new year.